Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Anyway, she goes to bed. I open up a box out of Barbara's. I light up. I pour myself a cognac. And I watch. The 14 fists of McCluskey. What a picture. Yo, homie, that my briefcase? And start asking the right fucking questions. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the One Heat Minute Patreon podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Blake Howard. This show is a bonus series that, you know, probably three to six months later may find its way to our main feed just simply because I love my guests so much that come on and talk to me about stuff, but you are exclusively hearing it here first. Uh, my guest today is one of my favorites that I get to talk to on the show. We always look forward to talking to each other in some capacity. And what you're going to start seeing is uh, something that I've kind of been keeping under wraps, which is working on some of my favorite films from a decade ago, doing a little thing I'm calling the decade project where I'm just going back into the films of 2013, exactly 10 years ago to dive through some of the big ones, but also some of the ones that mean the most to me. And I feel like have endured the man I'm talking to today is the wonderful Isaac Feldberg. You've heard him on here talking to me about Tinker, Taylor, Soldier, Spy. He's a critic and an editor and a really phenomenal interviewer that you're going to find across a whole bunch of stuff. As I'm staring at his face right now, he's bleary eyed. He's got Sundance hangover. Bless him so much for taking time away from like 25 assignments to come back and talk to me about a 2013 movie that was so fun at the time because it was incredibly divisive. And on one side you had people like the sensational like Manola Dargis, who was like talking about, I guess, the dread and this moral quandary that this movie came up with and this like excess, this contemporary Gomorrah. And then you just had a whole bunch of people who eviscerated it and hated it. And what's been brilliant over the last decade, as all the films I'm going to talk about in this little series, is that it has gained this incredible enduring life in our pop culture which is that it's kind of memeified but whenever you mention it people sneak out under the mat and they're like oh i'm down for this movie so the movie is the counselor will you yes i will <laughs> i intend to love you until i die me first counselor my back's against the wall man money problems are serious problems i will set it up 625 kilos. We're probably looking at 20 million. I know why I'm in it. Do you? It's a nice ring. Want to know how much it's worth? I always thought a law degree was a license to steal, but you hadn't really capitalized on it. I'm really worried, maybe. It's going to be all right. If you pursue this road that you've embarked upon, you will eventually come to moral decisions that will take you completely by surprise. You should be careful what you wish for. You might not get it. 
counselor. We've got a problem. And the shipment, it's gone. I had a call from our business partners. These people are out 20 mil. They think we're all involved, don't they? No. Just you, counselor. You. They don't believe in coincidences. They've heard of them. They've just never seen one. You're in trouble. When the axe comes through the door, I'll already be gone. What do you think I should do? How bad is it? We're all done here. It's too late. I can vanish in a heartbeat. Can you? The slaughter to come is probably beyond our imagining. You are the world you have created. And when you cease to exist, this world that you have created will also cease to exist. My guess is great Isaac Feldberg. I think he's going to be back for a few of these because I know that he, like me, we kind of like was starting reviewing films properly around this time. Isaac, thank you so much for being a part of the show again, my man. I really appreciate you. How have you been? Blake, thank you for having me. I'm always happy to step away from the the Sundance uh, fever, uh, which <laughs> does feel like an actual like you know medical fever that, <laughs> uh, to to see you and to talk about a movie that i you know i adore the counselor and it's exactly to what you're saying it's one of those movies that starts conversations wherever it goes um and it, you just watching that movie like just imagining that movie coming out in 2013 uh the the you know responsibilities of the studio to sell this western that is just this series of like dense philosophical monologues and <laughs> brutal murders it's um it's it's delightful you know i i love it very dear um, I, I remember sitting in an audience with i was sitting next to two or three other film critics and i remember one of those things you know, when you kind of like feel like you're in a hostile enemy position in the, in a war zone where there's yeah. like four of you guys and there's like 300 people trying to get into whatever position you're in. And so Absolutely. you're just holding fort and you're just waiting for the doors to burst. That's what it felt like because I was watching this movie thoroughly enjoying the contrast that it was playing with. And it's kind of self-awareness of like, we're creating this opulent drug trade and if anyone had an even a passing familiar with Cormac McCarthy I'm like oh this is all going to hell do we not understand it's all about to go to hell and yeah. and I was enjoying like oh look at all and people are like oh it's opulent it's silly these people are having philosophical conversations and I'm like well that's the, the whole thing is this penetrating sometimes literally uh penetrating thing where it's it's examining opulence drugs like thinking that you can be above the law and, and then singular mistakes in this world have ramifications and consequences that are just not in, in real life and, and not there. And, oh man, I was so down for it. And I just remember walking out and people like that whole, like you're walking out of the theater conversation, yeah. people were eviscerating it. And I was just sort of sitting silently waiting for my turn. 
And then people were like, hey, man, do you, oh, that was bad, right? And I was like, no, that was amazing. I loved that. I loved every frame of that. That was so fun. I had a great time. And people were like, what's like, what, what are you talking about? How did you like that? I'm like, well, you'll have to wait because I've got some thoughts. You know, I've got some thoughts about this thing. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's one of the, those movies that you do either get on its wavelength immediately and you're tapped into this, you know, very, um, the this very, you know, theatrical, but also very uh, brooding and apocalyptic sort of tenor to the conversations. And it's like, it is, it's very, um, it, it's very ornate and it's very, um, I said dense, but also it's very cryptic. You know, the yes. the thing, the conversations that these characters are having are not straightforward. They are, you know, uh, remarkably uh, verbatious characters. <laughs> yes, they speak in these like grandiloquent stanzas of, <laughs> of you know of you know just uh, you know, calling on like you know Antonio Machado to make a <laughs> like you know you're you've got like these um, you know characters who are um you know they are drug dealers they they are involved with the cartel there but they're also in this business world and there's this sort of sheen of professionalism that i think is so uh so key to what you know our titular counselor uh poor michael fassbender uh the um the star of the show the man of the hour uh that you know it really lures him in in a way because he's like oh you know, these these guys are surrounded by signifiers of their wealth and of their success. I'm going to, you know, meet with diamond dealers in this as well. Like, and, you know, that's the kind of the conversations I'm comfortable with. And he, I don't think, is prepared for, you know, what's beneath all of that dialogue and beneath all of the um, the the back and forth over these, um, you know, kind of highfalutin almost like mythological concepts uh which is like just a very savage uh clinically efficient uh killing machine of an operation <laughs> yeah. there, there's like there's this brutality to it that i think is there it's just it's a razor edged movie um i think in the, in the way it plays with uh, these characters talking to each other and what they really mean uh, when they're saying all of these things yeah everything's you know every concept also it's like uh you just touched on something for me which i think mm. happens and it's really real and obviously it's incredibly heightened in this movie but mm. people use intelligence as class you yes. know because in these in these areas where to even get in the rooms you have to have money you have to elevate it from like, am I old money? Am I new money? Am I dirty money? And the intelligence is the is 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 almost laundering the money that they're dealing with in these situations. They're like, I'm I'm philosophically thoughtful. I'm deep. Yes, I'm crass and I'm gross and I'm over the top. And Harvey, everything about Javier Bardem's like hair yeah. and outfits and and overly incredibly affrontingly white teeth are just so perfect with how it's all structured and and even with i mean this is my maybe equal favorite cameron diaz performance ever like cameron diaz like she's just complete like instrument of sex and power 
and yet she'll have lots of like, what is the life that you're even living? Like some of her lies lines are like the most Anton Chigurh lines with like Penelope Cruz. Like you live in a dream. Like she's almost like you live in a dream world. Like this is, this is insane. And it's so yeah. great. And I just had such, I, I, I had, and I continue to have such a great time watching this because like there's, I, I was watching it again. I watched the whole film recently and I've just been picking apart through scenes and it's almost in the extended cut because has a bunch of additional footage, a bunch of additional scenes. And even a couple of the deleted scenes didn't make the extended director's cut. But mm-hmm. um, um, thanks to one of our patrons, CK, who loves uh, uh, cataloging scri- scripts and deleted scenes and what gets left on the floor. Yeah. Um, but he, uh, I, it's about an hour in after all this stuff's happening and it's all this foreboding. And then when it actually starts breaking down, it's, it's the palette of the movie changes. There's no more color or life or anything. It's just, everything feels like death Mm. is coming. And at the very worst that you get, you also go, Oh my God, it's even worse than that. (laughs) It's even worse than I could have imagined that it's going to get. It it completely has that quality to it. I think that, you know, in talking about The Counselor, this is a Ridley Scott movie and it is a beautifully made one, uh, but it is also a Cormac McCarthy movie. Yes. And I think that, you know, part of what I should just disclose up front in talking about The Counselor is that Cormac McCarthy is probably my favorite author, at least like my favorite living author. Um, I think that he has a style that is completely his own. Um, you know, actually, no, I, I think he has multiple styles that are completely his own. And I think <laughs> yeah. that he between them uh, with this like incredible, um, you know, kind of almost like fire and brimstone level of intensity of purpose. Like he he is just um, he is God to <laughs> his to the worlds that he creates. And, you know, I think that the. And he's a, a, venge, a vengeful God. A vengeful. A vengeful God. He's a wrathful God. <laughs> yes. um, and he is very Old Testament in his, uh, you know, in his addresses, uh, his decrees. But he is best known for Westerns and for, you know, apocalyptic novels like The Road. And I think that The Counselor is, as, you know, Cormac McCarthy's for like spec script that he just, you know, wrote. <laughs> It is like uh, that, you know, has made its way into this incredible film. It, it It's an apocalyptic Western. It is, you know, a movie about, you know, this frontier and about frontier violence and about the idea and the, the inanity of the idea of frontier justice. Anything that, you know, the American West had once played with or that landscape of cowboys and gunslingers and propri- proprietors and... Uh, I, I think that in pretty much every way, the counselor takes that kind of language, that mythology, and it also, it, it brings to bear on it this, you know, just storm cloud of violence and destruction and reckoning. And you, you mentioned Anton Chigurh earlier, and I think that that's kind of the tell. There's like, there's always a sociopath in these movies and and i think cameron diaz plays that role quite beautifully um and zanely and and uh just completely 
to the hilt in in the counselor. But I, I think that, you know, there is that character who is that character who is very clear eyed about the reckoning to come and positioning themselves as being the one who's meting out punishment as opposed to receiving it. But I just remember that line in No Country for Old Men where uh, Javier Bardem is talking about an accounting yes. that will come, you know, he's like, and he's like, yeah, he's like, what's the most you've ever lost in the coin toss? Like he knows <laughs> like the worst thing that can happen it is going to happen eventually. And it's like, I, I think that because Dwight, the odds always go to zero in the, like yeah, the, odd, they, the odds always go to zero. He, that's, that's the, that's the Cormac McCarthy modus operandi. I want to, I want to mention for folks. So, you know, we're kind of in Cormac McCarthy fever right now. We've got two new books in a single year. Um, uh, I've just picked up one of them over the weekend. Um, so very happy to actually finally dive into that. And there was a time here where Cormac McCarthy was on the hook to deliver a manuscript from his representatives who had been waiting because there was no one bigger in the literary world after No Country for Old Men wins an Oscar and it had been adapted by the Coen brothers in such a sort of offbeat way. You know, they were like, we, we're going to... Ad- we're going to adapt two authors, Homer and Cormac McCarthy. Like that's the only authors we're going to adapt. And then later, um, uh, you know, Shakespeare, even if it was just one of the brothers that actually did it. But um, he then just rolls into a meeting with a spec script. <laughs> like a, 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 like I, I haven't written a novel. I've written a script. And then it became obviously the hottest property in the world. So in sort of 2012 when it emerged that this movie was going to be made and just the hitters that are in this movie, you know, Fassbender, who was the hottest actor in the world at the time, Penelope Cruz, Javier Bardem, Cameron Diaz, you name it. It had this immense and like salivating worthy script. Brad Pitt's there. John Leguizamo pops up for a hot minute. Like it's like there's so many Bruno of these. Gantz. Bruno Gantz. Like, Bruno can we, can we through the we have to talk about that scene, but it just became this thing that I think a whole bunch of people were expecting to be one thing. And I think if anyone had even a tiniest sense of who Cormac McCarthy was as a creative, you're like, yeah. oh no, this is not going to be this glitzy poppy pulp crime thing. It's going to be deeply philosophical and it's going to hit and murder harder than most things because it's going to be ruthlessly brutal. And I think that that's what he gets. That's why that frontier, that borderlands crime is so fascinating. It's because you're facing two completely different paradigms and perspectives of law and order. And mm-hmm. um, there's, you know, one being one side of the fence prescribing to law in some senses and, and, and across the border being order. And that conflict is, they're not the same thing. They're not going for the same thing. They don't operate on the same level. They don't have the same structures. Um, and I, and you know, you, going back to some, another film that I love is like last of the Mohicans. There's someone who wrote this incredible essay for the book, the philosophy of uh, the philosophy of Michael Mann was pointing out the great conflict of Mohicans is that you're operating with three judicial systems at the same time. You've got the, you know, the Indian judicial system, you've got the American emerging America's judicial system, and you've got British judicial systems fighting with one another because they all have different purposes and different gods. Um, mm. And so I think these borderlands crime dramas are so 
fascinating because you're just working with these two paradigms. They're instantly in conflict from the second you start the movie and then all these other little parasitic entities that are around them trying to figure it out are all just trying to get what they can out of this system. Yeah. Yeah. And the I, I think it's such an interesting movie about systems and about, you know, the way that people can operate within them, because I think it also uh, gives these characters the measure of their um, of their decisions. Like, you know, there there is weight to the choices that are made uh, it, by the characters in this movie. But there's also, uh, to your point, just this um, this understanding that you need to have to 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 get out unscathed like you know there's this whole uh kind of element to it where people just don't pay attention enough like you know to to what's going on around them and then it's too late by the time they kind of understand what the score is um but i think that one of the more brutal things about the movie is that um there is this like kind of element of like oh it's too late to escape because you thought that you were on top of this and you weren't, and now you're going to die. Or now, you know, the worst possible thing is going to happen. And um, there, I can't remember which character it is who gives the, like, as the world gives way, the darkness speech. That, like, <laughs> I, I mean, they all do at different points. <laughs> I was just going to say, it's hard to yeah. track that because everyone kind of says that at any, at any given point in the movie. Yeah, but it's it's late in the movie and he's like, you know, the the understandings of the world is in fact oneself. Like that whole I, idea like it, you create the world that you live in. Um and, you know, it is the sum of your decisions this. <laughs> and so as it is kind of collapsing into darkness, you need to have an accounting not just for the system but for your role within it and the the thing that you have kind of done to bring yourself here. Um, and I think that that's kind of, that's a real McCarthy thing. Like, you know, it's, it's Anton Chigurh as well. He's like, he's like, you're going to make a choice and then you're going to either die or live. And, yeah. you know, it doesn't really matter how, and he reduces it to that, you know, that coin toss idea where you're like, wow, like it would, be, and like Carla Jean at the very end challenges him on that. Uh, he's just like, you know, it's like, no, this isn't fair. Like you're, the, <laughs> you're the guy who's doing the coin toss. And he's like, <laughs> it's, um, but um the, and that, is, but that but that's his hack that's almost his yeah. hack for that it's it like is. it's He's like the guy who wants to go get the pizza because yeah. he like does the, yeah <laughs> life lives and dies by the coin toss and then it's almost like Shigo yeah. kind of awoke with the idea of like what if i'm the one tossing the coin and yeah. that's it that's what if i'm the one who's refereeing life and death um and and there's there are so many coin tosses in this movie, but let's go backwards quickly because we just talked about the wonderful Bruno Gantz, who at this time also um, had been incredibly hot property, yeah. um, uh, you know, just coming off playing Hitler in his last days, um, which has been endlessly memed, which is kind of strange also. Like it's like it's memed to death, but it's very strange. Um and then he comes into this movie is this sweet kind of adorable kind of fastidious man yeah who especially in the extended cut has this 
huge monologue about culture and cultural shifts shifts yeah. and this like postmodern idea that there's no culture and he's doing it all through the prism of diamonds and mm-hmm. all through the prism of Jewish culture and it is a really like I love when casting makes a scene even more stuffed with you know philosophy than obviously the philosophy that they're saying in the scene or the you know the performances um it is such a such an incredible scene of like you know diamonds come and go and what's the ultimate destiny for this stone it's that it survives and it was here before we realized it was here and now we have it this flawless thing that nature has created and it's going to outlive and outsurvive us all. And it's going to have this, it's just going to be this refraction, this interpreter of everything, um, all the joy and love that it brings to the world, but also it's probably going to bear witness to some absolute gnarliness, which is yeah. me just completely chunking and trying to summarize and th- synthesize the theme of the scene. But that's a scene that I go back to and I'm like, I can't believe this scene exists because it's so perfectly calibrated for what the philosophy of this movie is. I think Michael Fassbender should be forever grateful that he got to do that scene. With yes. Bruno. It's yes. like, you know, he, he, he was remarkable. I mean, like he would even, I mean, Bruno Gans has just had too many roles to name, but you know, he is just so good at that as that either that old spook or just that old guy who is, he has lived long enough to kind of know what the score is to, to what we were saying, but you know, also what he, he says about the diamond in, in that scene that is so compelling as well. He's like, you know, um, the purpose of adornment is, you know, you're wearing the stone for a time and the stone will outlive you, but it also calls attention to the fact that you won't outlive the stone. It calls attention to the beauty and the power of your temporary life. Like your, your, um, your, your frailty. Uh, That, that idea is like very much, in 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 the counselor it's like you know for how long can you fly close to the sun for how long can you live the life of this immortal being um you know untouchable in your palace uh and i i think it it really um is quite incisive about that about like you know the opulence of the rich being a rental yes individual person and you know you're never going to really know when your time is up with it but someone else is going to move in as soon as you're you know as soon as you're like writhing on the floor of the polo (laughs) we'll be right back after this little break everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. There was something that my um, my my brother and sister, who I just call my brother and sister, are actually half brother and sister because their mum, when they were growing up, passed away 
from cancer. And then my mum and dad got together and, you know, we recreated our family unit. So for like my whole life, if I, people are like, oh, that's your half. I don't, I didn't play that shit, but that's my brother and sister. And um, my sister recently had a whole bunch of jewelry that was, that belonged to her mum, yeah. And like old tacky, as you would probably expect, you know, we're not a very, we're not like this opulent, well-off family, but like old tacky, 70s and 80s jewelry if you like and she had it smelt down like a a bunch of these old pieces that belonged to her mom into this beautiful quite plain bracelet and um and i really i you know some people might find the sentimental value in the individual pieces but i found it quite beautiful that she was kind of taking all of these memories and binding and bounding herself to them with this new thing that was hers that was hers and it kind of feels like it was that and that's what I kept thinking about when I watched this I was like oh my god I've had this like little own personal thing it's just like you have these things that in that moment at that time in her mother's life were these incredible tokens of like love and gifts and family and all those things and whatever that whatever the hell they were and then they transition into these other things, which are like, oh, these are, you know, these these are more than that. They're different, and yeah. and and they're evolving. And I kept thinking that when I was watching that Bruno Gantz scene, it's like, again, it's it's particularly apt with the council. I feel to get as philosophical as possible, but like a diamond refracting light is how you find its value. It's how you find its clarity. And light passing through it is obviously a beam that is transitioning through, and how the light refracts out of it or the clarity with which it does it to be graded and all those sorts of things. So it is about all the things that you bring to it and then all the things that pass after you. And I feel like the whole movie is a nexus of that. It's like, we're, this is all the stuff we're bringing to it. And this is how it refracts out of it and shows you the consequences of what it is. But that thing is just going to keep passing on. And so yeah. I, 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 I love that because then, then there's guilt and consequence and the morality is there because the challenge in the extended cut that Bruno Gantz gives to Fassbender is that like, you know, we were a warrior culture with the ancient Greeks. We're a culture of compassion and gods, um, you know, and, and, and like Western ideological church um, perspectives in the Western world. Now we're moving into a time of no culture and the diamond is a totem of all of that. And so it feels like as he's having this really big philosophical question, exactly as you said, it's like, yeah, the diamonds, the the coin toss. It's like, it's everything that this movie is. And, you know, it's amazing that, you know, we, we meet the counselor when he's going to that diamond dealer to the engagement ring for her. And he's obsessed with the symbol. He's obsessed with the idea of attaining this kind of, um, symbol of of wealth but also this like you know and and i think that he has a very different idea about what a diamond is yes for that nation with bruno gans and i don't think he understands either no. um I, he's engaged in that conversation but i don't think he understands what bruno gans is saying he's like, going to school as an actor and as a character <laughs> yeah completely because like you know i mean i see mcqueen said that Fastbender is like one of the best, one of the best contemporary actors, and I, I would have to agree because so many of his performances is so wonderful. But yeah. there's an effortlessness that some of these older actors, you know, it's a, a Bruno Gans or a Donald Sutherland or a Isabel Huppert or someone like that, like they get to a level 
where they can just exist. And you're oh, like, yeah. it's, it's, some, it's, it's something different. transcendent about it. You're like, oh, they're just existing. Look at how they can just be in a scene. There's a difference between, you know, there's a difference between working hard and between understanding, right? Like <laughs> yes. That, which is, you know, and there's a difference between, you know, um, being talented and working hard and being a pro. And I think yeah. that, you know, that understanding is what Bruno Gans has. And I think he's just so perfect for that part um, because he is, he's trying to impart this kind of like this, very arcane wisdom that you know michael fassbender is just not prepared for because he doesn't come from that world he's a no. lawyer it's like you know um he's we used to kind of dealing with the minutiae of these like of these details and of like every transaction but he's not really thinking about the big picture at all but like even like you know before that scene you see that motorcyclist just like kind of yeah. heading out um and, you know, he's he's heading toward what the counselor is going to do. Like, and, you know, that's like that character is just um, that part is already in play. Yeah. And you know, and it, I think that this movie does um, have a lot in it about fate. And I think that, you know, when you think about that scene in context later, like the of the diamond dealer scene, um where it's like, you know, he's so desperate to find this, like, kind of token of his affection for Laura. Um, like, and, and we should talk about the sex scene as well. Oh, with yes. Laura. It's, uh, it, it's so interesting because I often see that pointed to as one of the film's weaknesses is its conception of Laura as being this kind of holy sort of presence in a way, uh, even though she's saying some, you know, or she's she's inviting some pretty explicitly sexual things like <laughs> in that scene, and especially in the extended cut of the film, that scene goes on for a bit longer and there's a bit more from her uh, toward him. But I and I think that it's also like the whitest sheets I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> there have never like the been that, there have never been whiter sheets in almost any thing I've ever seen. That's like when you go to like a really fan if you're ever lucky enough to stay in a fancy hotel or save up and go for a special anniversary. That's like one thing that when you go to like these places, it's like a million thread count or whatever it is. Cause they're always very opulent, but they're like so white. And you're like, yeah, you know, I, I got two kids. I got two kids. Like I, I just know that some schmutz, some kids going to come in and like dirty. Yeah, up. I'm, I'm never somehow like just by being here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's uh, uh, we can't, we can't have them in here. Like one night a grubby kid's going to come and sneak into my bed and, then maybe yeah. have a have a night terror and have an accident, <laughs> and then those sheets are going into bin. I'm not doing any of that. So it's it's just one of those hilarious things where you're like, but no, it's it's an amazing scene. They're just that they're, they're just completely into each other. I love that she's a little bit old, like age appropriate, like she's age appropriate. She has all this sexual agency. She's kind of re releasing herself, even though she's this quiet stoic religious person by admission and then they have this amazing you know i think manola dargis in a review said like that they whisper sweet dirty nothings to one another which i just love that turn of phrase it's just like it's 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 terrific and it's like it's so immediate and it just exists in a realm of its own like outside of it and i think that so much of what cormac mccarthy does with that character is 
that she is the untouchable. Yes. Uh, she the vir- she's like, you know, somehow she's not the virgin because, you know, they're, they, they're definitely, you know, getting up to some stuff in there. I, uh, but at this, at the same time, she has this purity and she's above what the counselor digs into. Yes. And I think that he sees her as worthy of this diamond because of that. But he's so kind of he he idealizes her in that way as well. And he he discounts her and her presence as well as being um, physically there. I think like, you know, that line which keeps coming up, it's kind of the line of the movie of like, you know, you think that you can um, you, you think you can be in the world without being a part of it or yes. not be a part of it. Uh, but like, I think he see he thinks of Laura in the world as this like you know angelic gorgeous being who he is with but he doesn't really see that she could be caught up in anything that he's doing um until it's too late and I think that there is a lot of um I always think of the scene in the gray where Liam Neeson's uh wife in the in that movie is just like also in the sheets then she gets like kind of pulled away because he wakes up and he's like in the um the snow have you have you seen um one of my favorite movies almost ever oh my god i love the gray i love the gray where their conversation is these like philosophical sort of pieces about you know what the will to survive means and you know where where it factors in or doesn't with either nature or in this case law and order um but it it's i love the let's bookmark this time in this conversation is a promise that isaac and i will be back to talk about the gray in so much more detail than just us gushing about the gray yeah but the the gray like the counselor just shows our proximity to death. Like I, I, I've spoken to a few people about this. One of my favorite trips of all time. I've, I've gone to Africa twice and I said, Africa is the realest place on earth. And people are like, what does that even mean? Right. You know, are you a Cormac McCarthy character, Blake? Like, what are you talking about? And, and what I say is the reality of existence where you see like extreme poverty, you know, um, uh, and, or layers of poverty or like extreme poverty and then extreme opulence, you know, Cape town that has yeah. a lot of, um, has this incredible, like, I guess there's these huge communities of low, like extreme low socioeconomic communities that are all bundled together on one side of Cape town. And then you get to Cape town, the town in South Africa, the city, and then you go over to the coastline, which, you know, um, to, to the actual Cape. And it's this, it almost feels like a Grecian town. It's all these white homes it's, you know, the Charlize Theron, Leonardo DiCaprio holiday home places that are there. And it's extreme wealth. And so you've got extreme wealth, a small like mountain range. You've obviously got, you know, some of the uh, the, the ge- geograph- geographical boundaries, like uh, physical boundaries in your way. And then you've got poverty. And I'm like, you've got poverty, you've got this. And then you've also got the wrinkle of a whole bunch of animals that if you accidentally walk out of your home one night by accident, you know, there's an elephant nearby that's with a, a baby elephant. And you could immediately be seen as seen as a threat. And then that's, it's all over for you. You know, I remember there was a time I was in a tent in Botswana and they're like, okay, if you need to go to the bathroom, gentlemen, in the middle of the night, I just need you to open your tent flap and go to the toilet, like 
out of your tent. Yeah. Yeah. And, completely. And, and ladies, if you're, if you also need to go, you need to basically just stand just enough outside of your tent and go to the toilet, like immediately in your tent. I know it might sound gross, but you've just got to go there and then get back in your tent. And they're like, why? And they're like, well, because where we're camping on this little Island in this sort of archipelago hippos will be out of the water at night and they look mm. at your tent and they basically see a rock, but if they see a person and they feel a threat, you just got to yep. kind of be mindful of it. And yeah. I just remember going like, Oh, I, that's not a problem that I have in Sydney. No, <laughs> this is not, this is like even camping in Australia. Like obviously like snakes, spiders, you know, those sorts of things, maybe crocodiles if you're in certain parts of the Northern territory or in Northern Australia, but it's like, you would be very aware of it. There'd be signage everywhere. There'd be ranges. There'd be all this stuff because, you know, of just the infrastructure of our Western society. But I'm like, yeah. it's the realest place on earth because it's the closest I've ever felt to being unsafe or being like that, just a, like at, at a passing familiarity. And that's what I feel with like the gray. It's like, you're there and it's like, oh, it's life and death. And like, if you get an injury, you're dead. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 and, and it's that yeah. yeah, it's that simple. And in 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 the counselor, if you are imperfect, back to our diamond exchange and how important that conversation. If you're imperfect, you're dead. Yeah, I'm mean, back to back to you know um, Brad Pitt in in that movie as well. Like the guy who who's like you know don't take fucking notes on this. Like to Fastbender at the beginning, like and. He like he seems like he knows what's up, but like you know, if he's off by a hair, then he's he's miscalculated something, and that's disastrous. Yes, uh, and I think that um, there, there's something that's that is very real about that. It, it's so funny you're talking about feeling uh, like having having had that experience because I always think of Australia as the place where all of the wildlife is trying to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> And even like, even as an Australian, Africa is another kettle of fish, is all I would say. It's like in Australia, you know, Isaac, if and when you ever come to Australia and we get to hang out, you'll just see that like there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of society, societal overlay to those sorts of things. And even like at a campground in Australia, you know, to, especially Southern Australia, you're not nearly going to get as much wildlife that is like scary, killer, like yeah. terrifying in my personal opinion, and I'm a, a movie guy. So I've seen all the movies about all the killer animals and all those sorts of, I've seen them. So I know, um, but yeah, it's not, it's not something nearly like that. Whereas like in Africa, you know, I had a grazed knee and you know what a staph infection is, right? Like you get an infection. I had a oh, staph. Really? Yeah. I had a staph infection on my leg. I've never had a graze on my knee that turned into a staph infection, but this is Africa. It's like, it tries to kill you. And I had yeah. a staph infection on my leg. I ended up taking antibiotics. We had a nurse on our trip, just who was actually one of the participants. Um, this is my second trip. My wife and I went on, and I had a staph infection on my leg. And we were staying in. Um, we were staying in. Oh, I'm trying to remember where it was. Like the Serengeti. There's like a national park where you eat in a dining hall that has cages around it because the food in there can get attacked by like hyenas late at night. And like, I'm asleep with a staph infection and I can smell the staph infection. That's a pretty gnarly thing to say, but you can smell that your like leg is infected and I can hear hyenas barking outside. Like, that's what I mean. Like I've never been that scared in Australia ever camping. I've never been that scared. Um, like, it, you know, just one night um, of that. And like, that's, you know, back to the counselor that's that's part of the allure for me is that it's so nakedly candid about death being at everyone's 
doorstep in this movie. Like yeah. the whole movie is just that you're, you're at death's door and the people who have any hesitance about that are just clueless. Yeah. It's the motorcyclist on the, on the road, right? Like, you know, yeah, it's, it's an iconic image. Like you're going to get to to where you're going until something is placed in your path. And then by the time you've seen that something's been placed in your path, it's already around your neck. Yes. And it's just like, it's brutal about that. I think it's one of the ways that I do see it as, as a Ridley Scott film, you know, like, I, I think that he, um, well, I'd, I, I can't remember who pointed this out. I remember someone was talking about the counselor on Twitter. I think it was Bill Chambers from Film Freak Central. Yeah, had, love Bill. Had compared it to the um, the Duelists. Yes. Uh, and was like talking about it as like, you know, how, and, and the last duel as well, like, you know, him returning to that territory as well. Like we can put it off as long as we want by talking it, talking around it or going through all of these like, um sort of uh these illusions of of process of you know of parts moving but it's still going to end with death and it's still going to end with you in this confrontation it's going to decide whether you walk away or whether you die um but mostly you're going to die um, <laughs> unless you're cameron diaz who's different she's just built different in that way um built so different in this movie god yeah. i love her like i when I said that Cameron Diaz, is, this might be my favorite performance. My other favorite performance of hers, a late 90s performance, like, a, you know, where she really gets to, I mean, she's such a charmer, like, you know, so many romantic comedies and Night and Day yeah. and Charlie's Angels. And the sweetest thing is uh, I hold a soft spot for how ridiculous that movie is. It's fantastic. Um, gross out sort of uh, affronting silly humor, but, yeah, um, and really enjoyable. But I love her in any given Sunday. I love her in any given Sunday. She's just amazing. You know, talking to Charlton Heston and Pacino and Jamie Foxx, she's just, she's just holding her own and they're all dancing to her tune. It's just fantastic. And yep. yeah, I just, I'm so, so, so impressed with her in this movie because yeah, like she's the one who's aware. She's telling everyone that they're this beautiful, cordial, like happy, moral life that they're living is a fucking joke. And that's the, the, the whole ethos of the movie. And that's one thing that in the extended director's cut, those folks who orchestrate that, mm -hmm. um, the decapitation of the motorcyclist yeah. you know, in, in the original theatrical cut, you don't hear who they're talking to or who they're following orders from. Oh, right. And, and in this one, you just get like a sliver of her voice on the phone, a sliver. Yeah. And you're like, Oh, Malkin, like these guys who are worried about Malkina, should be worried about Valkyrie and they're all kind of dismissing her as this, she's, you know, sex pot. She does whatever she wants. She's yeah. impulsive. You know, she has gynecological sex, you know, to, to tain, um, uh, had to, you know, got to run after the counselor walked is what I think. Um, but it's, 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 yeah, it's one of those yeah. things where you're like, Oh, she's just this instrument of like id and all that chaotic stuff and not thinking bigger, but she's actually the architect. She sees, an opportunity yes. and she takes it. Yeah. And I, I think that Reiner like just completely does not understand that he's being manipulated because I mean, the guy's obsessed with sex. Like that's his, his vice. Like, you know, he, uh, and he can't stop telling stories about these <laughs> luring women 
Um, but you know what the image I always think of in you know the scene of uh, <laughs> you know on on the car is if, like you know um, kind of like a snake, like a cobra, like just kind of moving back and forth before yes. it strikes. Like, and I think that um, she um, she beguiles him and she enthralls him, but she has him completely in the palm of her hand, or like and just like captivated and he feels it like as well in that scene i think that's why he tells that story about um her being i mean everyone who's listening to this at this point i'm assuming has seen the counselor and and you knows would, you, you everyone knows i think even if you haven't yeah. seen it you know the scene you know yeah. the scene we're talking about where cameron diaz has tender marital love with the car she, <laughs> and, and it's just like completely she's like i'm gonna fuck your car and then she gets and then she gets up and she fucks the car. Um, and I I think that uh and, and he just says he like it changes a man to see a thing like that. And, <laughs> and it his, does his line delivery is heroic. Um, he's he's yeah. so good in that scene. And what's even funnier is I, I think it's a line in the I think it might be in both. I'm I'm sorry. I'm a bit of a swirl of both of them because I've just watched. I watched the theatrical and I watched the, the, uh, no, the extended no. cut back to back. But there's a moment where Fassbender goes, "Why would you tell a story like that?" <laughs> he yeah, just gets, "Why would you tell me a story like that?" And he's like, "You asked. I'm gonna just tell you the story exactly as I see, as I, exactly as I see it coming together, and that's what it is. And and it's he's so disarmed by her that he can't he can't see the forest from the trees. It's all a technique. Like we can reflect on it later. It's like her completely beguiling him and doing this. And, you know, she knows what his vices are. It's just such, it's so great to have him go uh, to, from Anton Chigurh to, to Rhino and to have her come in because it's, it's just this perfect, he is the character who I, I think on some level he does understand that, she's going to be the death of him but i think he can't get away i think no. that she just is completely insane i mean she's a cheetah she runs faster like yes. you know she she's playing she, with him she's he's the rabbit she's just toying with him absolutely and like he i think likes that in a way because i think he's like oh okay like this is um i, I think that that's the thing that can can get to him and i think that you know this movie is fascinated by the way that like in a system that is run by men women have this interesting power uh that they can exploit but, but that can also really victimize them and it's just about how they position themselves to that because either they're going to be um consumed and you know brutalized by uh all of these men like uh you know just participating in all of the cartel violence that's happening or she can assert power over them and because they are so um or especially reiner because he's just like so obsessed with sex like for her to kind of um stun him in that way she like find she finds a way that she can actually be more in control of what's happening than he is um and I, I don't know. She's just a fascinating character. I do think that she's a bit of a sociopath because I think everything that she does in this movie um, is about toying with. Oh, and, and the and the only person, and that's a, a you know, 
if the if the thesis of that she's finally learned, especially not only the, I guess the technique, but the um, the those susceptible to her, this sexual power that she's been crafting. It's yeah. when she goes and visits the priest and tries to make him listen to her debauchery, and he just does not participate. He's just yeah, like, no. Because this is this is like going to lead me to sin. And like, I think, and he says, like, you know, it's like being in love with easeful death, yes. which is, which is it. Like, you know, and like, I think that he, uh, she does like know completely um, what she is doing. And I think that he just, like that idea for a character like him who spends so much of this movie speaking about the inevitability of things the inevitability of fate and kind of the someone's role in deciding what their own fate is i think he's like well this seems like a pretty fun way to go i'm gonna go (laughs) (laughs) like um but brad but brad pitt we talk about malkina brad pitt even says earlier he's like talking about cautionary and he's like the you know the etymology of cautionary is that like you know someone is holding something like like holding something like a a piece of value for someone in this cautionary thing like they're holding a piece of value lending you out this advice or whatever and then it's the position that you put both of those people in you have you are either the person who's taking the caution and someone's sort of there holding some form of security and he goes that's the that's the scary thing is that what happens if what you're holding is more valuable to them than the caution because they don't have to directly be the ones who are out there doing it. And it's like, he tells us right from the beginning, like this is the way that Malkina gets to orchestrate this thing. All these other people take the risks. All these other people put themselves on the front line. And she just has this micro crew of specialists that are working completely behind the scenes and outside of the purview of anything else. Cause she's seen the inner workings of this entire operation and she's just going to eventually self-sabotage them and the people that they're that they owe um and the people who are expecting that they're going to get paid out of all this are just like they don't they don't they they don't need to look beyond it because there's these big flashy targets that they get to you know to to manipulate and string up and do these awful things to that will eventually write the ship and then she gets to run off into the sunset with all this money and so you know and even with Westray, it's like oh he knows that something might go down like this but i can get out i can get my money i can do this and then that's all it takes it's just like oh i can get out and it's like and she even knows like i've got to get the guy who thinks he can get out too and that's what happens yeah. and the counselor just thinks that he's like that yes i think that's the tragedy of the characters he just thinks that he's like Westray. And like Westray thinks that he is better than he is too, but he's like, you know, it's like we're playing with very merciless people here, and the counselor is like, oh, it's okay, because like he's just not used to the idea of being directly involved, even when yes. he's in, or not, he's not used to the idea of being implicated when he's involved. Yes, uh, and I I think that, you know, the it's a fascinating sort of thing to think about, given that Cormac McCarthy is someone who has written so much about the border and has written so much about the American West. And I think that he does see the border as this kind of um, mythological divide between light and darkness and between yes. good, between um, 
survival and death, uh, maybe life and death more um, specifically. And so I think that there is this kind of, um, there, he moves between worlds, like the counselor moves like to into the cartel space and he doesn't understand that he's not in his world anymore. Um, and that, until it's too late. But I think that the the entire movie is just like these characters um, sitting around waiting to die and talking about how it could happen um, and almost understanding that because we've come to this place, it's already too late. Yes. Um, and I think that that's what makes so much of the I I, th- I think that's what is sort of lost when people are like, well, they're just like talking. And it's like, you know, they're, <laughs> what are they're... they talking about? What are they exactly. talking about? Yeah. It's like, I think that you really need to listen to that. Like, you know what? Um, and, and you need to understand that like the fact that they're talking is not because this is just like a very loquacious drug dealer. They're, they're having conversations about the existential, um, just kind of the meaning of everything that's happening because yes. they're just, and I, I think that that's something that Cormac McCarthy does. Um, it's so in, intentionally is to kind of, you know, create these uh, characters who can discuss these, like absolutely like um, these innate elemental conflicts. Um, and, and he really, I think that's what his fascination with is can we reason through something that is faded and yes. something and and what would it mean to do so like is there any escape from this through understanding or is there just clarity um it, it reminds me i think you're so spot on i love that is there any is there any even when you understand it is there any escape so perfectly put the one thing i'll sort of help us close out with is just referencing another film a, a fantastic moment in anton fuqua's training day great scene oh, yeah. with cliff curtis and ethan hawk is in a bathtub about to be murdered yeah and he thinks <laughs> that he understands that everything is happening and he's there and it is just by some pure chance that he happened to show some niceness to cliff curtis's like daughter that day yeah. Yeah. And like Cliff Curtis is adhering to all the rules of the world. And it's just like that impulse of like, I'm going to be merciful Mm. is so filled with chance and life and death is just like skating on those chances that I I think about that scene a lot because Mm. of how, how wonderfully it's put together in the context of that movie, but just how like, we don't even know sometimes. And, and what's cool, what's different about the council at a training day is that there's no small mercy in this movie that could save any of these characters. And that's what's Cormac McCarthy about it. And that's why an older Ridley Scott, an aging director who's kind of seen it all, it's kind of beyond that no country thing of like, there may have been a chance, you may have had a choice, you may have been even been able to get it down on a coin toss. And it's like, no, it's inevitable. Like, the fact that you're in this business and the fact that you've crossed this line, there's a lot of people who are past the line who are just, who are biding time. They're in the retirement village before death because they understand how close they are to it all the time. And the counselor is so blissfully unaware of the fact that once he crosses that line, everything in his life is in jeopardy. There's nothing that he can do. And I, I think that the, you know, 
there's a very, there's a steadiness and there's a surety to all of the filmmaking. Darius Wolski's great cinematography, like the score, just like everything is so sure. And it's just done so confidently. That's like one of my favorite Ridley Scott directed films because he just gets all these people to this place and they go through this unfathomable trauma and mm. he's just so steady and calm in his approach to it that it kind of matches the calmness of McCarthy's script and that fusion of those two together it just like it's beautiful it's, clean. it's so clean it's you know it's business as usual I think you know the <laughs> yeah. starts it starts with you know the sort of moving of cargo the, the and like you know that sort of um with one thing moving uh, from one place to the other, and it ends with uh, the very same sort of image, but it's, you know, with, with Laura um, to, and, and I think that, you know, this movie also the, the, what you're talking about with the cinematography, I think it's such a um, slick um, kind of professional sheen and polish that this movie has uh, because that's the world operating. Yes. Even, and you know these characters are working to try to um, stay to keep pace with it and to survive it, but it's you know it's going to keep kind of moving forever like this, and just uh, there's always going to be this just savagery to it. Um, and it, it's interesting because you know it, you're, we've been talking a little bit about New Country for All Men in comparison to The Counselor as well, and that movie ends with. Um, that speech about this kind of perpetual struggle between uh, light and darkness. But then uh, Tommy Lee Jones is like, and then I woke up. <laughs> He's describing how this like permeates his, um, his, his dreams. But I think that, you know, I think um, the grand struggle of it um, is ultimately going to be beyond you. Yes. Um, you're going to have to live your life for however long it is and it's going to end and that struggle war will persist but i think these characters are so in a way focused on that that they start to believe themselves in some way to be um above it or more powerful within it than they are um they're just specks of dust you know moving through well thank you for us matching some of the philosophical uh, conversations of the counselor together and getting not too silly about its inherent silliness because it's just so wonderful. Um, Isaac Felberg, thank you so much for being a part of the show again. It's so wonderful to talk to you again. Um, People are going to hear this conversation pretty early for our patrons from when we're recording. They're going to hear it kind of at the end of this week. So where is your incredible Sundance coverage coming from to, and where can people find some of your great interviews? Cause I think that that's one thing I want to credit you personally. I love reading Isaac's profiles. He's such a prepared fastidious thinker and a great interviewer, which is why I have so much fun talking to him. So where can people find some of your stuff in this upcoming uh, crazy festival season? Oh, thank you for saying that, Blake. I really do appreciate it. Um, I, the interviews that I'm doing for Sundance this year are going to be uh, split between Filmmaker Magazine, right. uh, the playlist, uh, RogerEbert.com, uh, and potentially uh, a few things for Letterbox Journal. Beautiful. Uh, so those are the that's the spread for Sundance. Um, 
But I, I guess one thing I would draw um, attention to is that a couple of weeks ago, I did an interview with Kyle Edward Ball for RogerEbert.com around yes. skin, the little viral horror movie of the moment. Um, I I don't know if that is coming to it's coming Aust- to it's coming to Oz, but it's doing like um, I think they're testing the waters with like one night onlys, a few oh, one sure. night onlys, and. I know a couple of um, uh, dist- uh, not distributors, rather exhibitors, like so, some theater owners and stuff like that, who I'm in regular touch with because of the Q and A's and things that I do. And I think that they are overwhelmed with the response to the one night only. So it might be more than one yeah. night only because, like, I think what they're one night only for Skinnerink in um, in Sydney. One one of them particularly was like just went gangbusters because of the buzz of this movie. So you know, I that I I I've I've um I've got that interview saved. I haven't read it because I want to see damn Skinnerink. I want to see it before I can no, before should. I can read it. You certainly should. I I I just draw attention to that one because it's just been so fun to. Uh, to get to write about movies that's strange and unconventional for sites like that. Uh, that's like one of the things I think I'm, I've been quite grateful for recently. Um, I, I should also mention just because I um, wasn't thinking about it, I actually, I do have a new uh, byline at uh, crom.com um, with the intrepid Alex Dowd, uh, formerly of the AV club. Um, awesome. Uh, He's been editing there, and we worked together recently on a piece about a five-part uh, Willie Nelson documentary that is Amazing. premiering and is, I'm just going to, I don't know if I'm under embargo for this, but I it's fantastic. It's, you know, a really um, beautiful, unconventional approach to a documentary about him, and it is just essentially like a conversation with Willie Nelson. He's just moving back and forth between all of these um, influences and these anecdotes and uh, these stories from his incredible life. And it is absolutely not one of those documentaries that opens with a fade up on a photograph of Willie Nelson <laughs> born in this year. It's like, it's, um, but I had a great conversation with the filmmakers about that. So that's on crown.com as well. But thank you for giving me a chance to plug some stuff. No, plug away. We love it. I'm going to check that out. I, I, I love that. I mean, you have to embrace the storyteller. It's Willie Nelson. Talk about a guy I could listen to talk for five hours in anecdotes it, and stories through time. It's like, that would the be thing, the, the greatest thing of all time. <laughs> it, and that's the thing is that, you know, they spoke with him. He did sit down interviews for this. And it was like the first documentary made with his involvement. And so he does, um, they did some interviews with him, but it's not just narrated by present day Willie Nelson. It's narrated by Willie Nelson via all of these archival recordings that they found uh, and have been able to kind of put together. And what's so incredible about it is that you really see his perspective evolving on and his his um, his outlook on things evolving over this incredible span of like a 70 year career uh, that he's had. And he says things um, he, he says things that he wouldn't say today, but the way that he says them, uh, in the, in the footage that they found and, and the way that they use that to help explain one thing that happened, um, it says so much to how things 
how people used to think about certain things and how he used to approach certain ideas and certain certain social ideas. Um, but it's just it's a it's made with love, but it is this um, kind of a remarkable just meandering tour through Willie Nelson's memory. Um, can't wait, can't wait to read that, and also can't wait to see that. Great to talk to you, my friend. I hope to have you back. We're talking for this decade project pieces. Me, you know exhuming old stuff that I've written about before and taking that lens to it, taking a completely different contemporary break lens to stuff that I engaged with really heavily. And I'm excited to do that. And so we'll definitely have you back for a couple more 2013 movies. We've talked about a couple of things now, but great talking to you and uh, take care and survive the Sundance malaise. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll be back talking at least about the gray. Oh my God. Oh. Number one. <laughs> I know it's 2011, but I think if I saw it in 2013, that you can. <laughs> I definitely watched it in 2013 at home. Um, so we'll make an excuse for that one, but um, plenty more to come. But yeah, thanks so much for your time, man. You're the best. Likewise, Blake. Thank you. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.